In the one hand, I work so intensely and judiciously to dissolve self, to dissolve identity, to dissolve boundaries, to dissolve disciplines. And on the other is reconstructing them as something else, giving it story, giving it identity. To me, a lot of the times it's about changing the conversation. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Rebecca Mendez is an artist, designer, educator, and Art Center alumna whose creative practice defies bounds of traditional disciplines or descriptions. Her widely recognized work in graphic design was included recently in shows at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. In 2017, she was awarded the prestigious AIGA Medal for her transformative work in academia and design. Rebecca is also a celebrated fine artist, best known for her mixed-media installations incorporating photography, film, video, and typography. She explores the mediated experience of nature at its most elemental in her breakthrough series, At Any Given Moment, filmed on location in Iceland. The project was exhibited around the world, including at Art Center's Williamson Gallery in 2010. It was there that I first physically encountered Rebecca's work and was spellbound by its raw power. Most recently, her video installation piece, Ascent of the Weavers, premiered at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Oaxaca, Mexico. A focal point of Rebecca's creative practice is her multimedia project, Circumsolar, which encompasses a mural, a photo essay, and several large-scale, single-channel video installations. The project is centered around a very small seabird, the Arctic tern, distinguished as having the longest migration of all living beings on Earth. Each year, it flies from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again. This bird's epic journey crystallizes Rebecca's interest in nature's exquisite refusal to succumb to the limits and artificial boundaries of human enterprise. Mendez also directs the Counterforce Lab at UCLA, where she is a professor of design media arts. She founded Counterforce to develop new modes of field research and to study the social and ecological impacts of climate change. Rebecca herself is a force of nature whose poetic spirit infused every moment of our impassioned and at turns tender conversation. We covered the broad arc of a remarkable journey from her upbringing in Mexico, where she became the country's top-ranked gymnast, to a singular creative career that dissolves boundaries and, to borrow her phrase, rages with love. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Mendez. There are many descriptors of what you do. You know, you're a photographer and you're a filmmaker and you're a videographer and you're a performer. You're an artist. You're a designer. And I think you've said somewhere that you actually think about your territory as the merging of all of them coming together. I'm curious just to begin to get a sense of how you think of yourself. How do you think about your work? How do you describe what you are? That, I think, um, it's one of the questions that for a long time, it actually kept me up at night in the <laughs> sense of, do I need to be in a certain discipline to have uh, 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 the respect of that discipline? Do I have to, you know, name myself that way and behave? Because each discipline has a code of ethics, a code of behavior, mm-hmm. n- nomenclature, all of that. You know, even just being in design requires certain terminology and, um, you know, culture. And then the art is its own terminology and culture. And I kept having to, like, feeling that I had to divide them. And I had to almost, like, hide one from the other. They're very fragile, each one of those. I've been so many times, like, too designy for the arts, too artistic for the design, uh, too Mexican for the United States, 
too gringa for the Mexicans. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just I've always felt the the pollution of 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 discipline is mm. so easy. And right now, in this last, I would say, five years or so, I have felt the more messy they are, the more that I am fluid to become what is required, that I am able to really kind of uh, take on the knowledge, the persona, the attitude of what is required to tell a story. And so I think that what has captivated more or what collects much more of the all of these ways in which I exist in the world has been perhaps the artistic fieldwork practice mm-hmm. in that for your idea, you basically can borrow from all kinds of different disciplines to be able to not only study and research and um, experience something, but that your artifacts, what comes out is whatever is needed. It's a book and it's a painting and it is a sound piece and it is a film a logo, right? It can be anything. So there's somehow I've been able to finally figure out a way to express them all and, um, you know, just really move myself around with all fluidity. And it really is energizing. Yeah. So you've been really very generous with your story. You've been very generous with talking about your work uh, as an Olympian athlete. You've been very generous in talking about your parents and their background in chemical engineering. You've talked about your father's passion for anthropology and spending, I guess, summers in the southern Mexican jungle, all of which gives me a sense of a very kind of rich background. And I invite you to talk about those things, but my purpose is to get to understanding Rebecca as a child to understanding the creative energy, how she engaged with the world, how she saw it. And maybe we can trace that then to some of the work that you're doing now too. Okay, yes, yes. Besides those stories that you mentioned, that they were so formative, I would say that since I remember, I was incredibly contemplative Hmm. and that I engaged in conversations with nature, with plants, with trees, with animals, with dogs. Like I would, my mother would say that I spent so many hours around the little black ants that I named them and that I would create place with them. So I think that spending a lot of time on my own and contemplating was such an important thing. Always I found myself in the in-between, like even, for example, if my mother would be very much with my oldest sister and my younger brother, my father would be very much with my the sister that, would, that follows one year ahead of me. Like if we would go and take a walk, like a hike, mother, older sister, brother behind, father with Leticia, my sister, in the mm-hmm. front. Mm-hmm. And I would want to be, I would always in the middle. And I would always walk and run and say hello and hug my dad. And then I would walk Mm. maybe an hour back to catch and hug my mom. Mm -hmm. But mainly I spend all the time on my own in these very long hikes. I mean, our hikes were five hours, six hours. So I really spent most of my time contemplating walking on my own. Were you taking care of them, do you think? Were you reminding them that you were there? Were you playing with boundaries again? I think almost um, all of the above. Uh I would say that primarily could have been reminding them that I am still here, (laughs) that I do exist. (laughs) That's the one that resonates. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) Because I feel, you know, being the third child, inevitably there's a lot of like falling through the cracks. (laughs) And I think that happened. I mean, I end up becoming the, you know, national champion in gymnastics, I think, for that very reason. And so tell us about that, (laughs) your gymnastics, and how did you find it? And how did it become such a passion? And a yeah. serious part of your early life. Oh, yes. It was all I could remember being for many, many years. Well, we started in in uh, grammar school. It was part of our school. I was in the Queen Elizabeth School in, in Mexico City. And we grew up very athletic. My father would take us rappelling and motorcycle riding and water skiing. But gymnastics was the one that I could, it's, it was so going inwards. It was not about, you know, um, 
a team sport. It was very individual. And it was a lot about the precision of the body. And you were so in touch with every bit of your body that if a, I remember there would be a dust, a speck of dust falling on my eyelash, Mm. I would have to stop the the move because the concentration was such. Mm. So there was something about that capacity to be in touch with all of you, with all of me, and at the same time to give it purpose. So what happened when you were on the Olympic team, actually, right? Yes. And what happened? Well, um, I remember it was 1979 when I became the national champion. And very soon after was the qualifications for the Olympic team. I made it to the, to the Olympic team, started training immediately. And very soon after, it was when um, uh, Russia invaded Afghanistan. Right. And the United States boycotted the Olympics. And immediately, Mexico boycotted the Olympics. And it was devastating because from one day to the next, I mean, you kind of like are aware of the news and you kind of hear a little bit. But, you know, I was not that, as, as, as let's say, aware and, and, and involved in politics as, as I am now. But suddenly they just told us this team has been dissolved. They will not be an Olympiad. And I died. I did mm. not know how to be anything else. Mm. And I remember human was still today. Like it, it hurts. Yeah. There's many times you die in your life, right? I think this time it was like the the determination, the dream, the hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours of training, and especially, you know, that idea was truly at my at the core of my existence at that time. And so very soon after, my father told me that I was going to the United States to study. It wasn't necessarily that I wanted to. It, it was, was your my father's dad, idea. My father's idea. And I always say that I was just too Mexican to say no. <laughs> right? You know, it's like my dad. I could not say no to my dad. At that time. And did but, he want you to study design particularly? Did no, he, want, he just did, wanted me to study in the United States. In the United States. States. Uh-huh. He saw it as an opportunity that he wished he would have had for himself. Right. So he saw that life changed profoundly for you. Yes. And so did you come to the United States directly to study at Art Center? Is that what happened? No, I, I went where my father felt I would be safe and my sister would be safe. So um, we went to where she was studying. She um, studied marine biology and San Diego State University was incredible for that. For her, mm. it was perfect. When all this happened with uh, losing my, my, my direction, with um, not having the Olympic team uh, then I was very lost. My focus on physics, mathematics, because I wanted to be an astronaut, and I was, I was good at physics. I loved it. I was mm-hmm. so passionate. It was this idea of having this chaotic pool of elements that suddenly would be become an abstra- that they were an abstraction, and then you would pull them and give them order, structure, meaning. And so I was in love with that. And I came to San Diego State to study physics, mathematics, and I took those classes, and I was so disappointed. Not only they were not as advanced as what I was studying in high school, but they were taught with incredible bored, mm-hmm. boredom. Like uh, it was, there was no passion, there was mm-hmm. no beauty, there was no elegance to to the mathematics and to the calculus I knew. And so it, it didn't take too much for me to then get derailed again. I was uh, So then my cousin told me, Rebe, I'm studying industrial design in Mexico. I think you would like graphic design. And I said, okay. And really, Did I you had, know what graphic design was? No. All I knew is that Except that you no just one, described it so beautifully exactly, as you talked about physics and mathematics. Exactly. Exactly. What <laughs> right? I did not know later on was that for me, art and design and physics and mathematics yeah. are exactly the same thing. I mean, they have so, so many commonalities. We look into this pool of chaotic elements. We decipher the patterns. We bring, begin to create structures. And then we give that form. Mm. And it is, you know, from observation to research to, again, deciphering patterns to rigor and methodologies to be able to get to all of that 
I'm, I'm doing the same. <laughs> right. And again, I mean, there you go with the merging and the playfulness with boundaries that, you know, and similarities that we don't always think about. Exactly. But there is a beautiful physics to design. Oh, yes. And there's obviously a wonderful design to physics, right? Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, in, a, in an interesting way, now that I am in my current practice, collaborating with more scientists and it's just somehow my worlds are coming back together. So I'm very interested in talking to you about the process that you go through in your work and in Having seen your work and reading about some of the things you've done and listening to various different talks that you've given, I've identified a few of them that I would like to invite you to just reflect on a little bit because I think your process is so interesting. And the first one has to do with the whole notion of cultivating the unknown that you talk about and that you even, I believe, talk about needing to unlearn, I believe is your word, which I think is an interesting one, and what it means to go into this creative place that we call uncertainty. Yes. I have found that my understanding of things and my limited knowledge is my obstacle whenever I want to be creative. When I really want to engage with something and almost like mate with either an idea or with a subject matter, and I presume to know I will impose my limited knowledge of the subject matter. When I come in with complete curiosity, the beginner's mind, the unknown, right? That idea of, I remember, I think it was Suzuki Roshi, right? That he spoke about the beginner's mind, where you approach it like a child, that you approach it with wonder, with curiosity. Then you begin to befriend that subject matter. Mm -hmm. You begin to, to get to see it as is at that moment because everything changes. So I change and I have changed. So let's say that I acquired some knowledge of a subject matter 10 years ago. That was Rebecca 10 years ago, understanding that and that 10 years ago. Rebecca now and the subject matter now and my location now will bring a completely different truth. And so I think that this idea of unknowing, unlearning, so that I'm able to perceive, I'm a raider of perception, and I then become open and receptive to what it is. Otherwise, I'm just really imposing something as if I feel that if I know it, or if I say I know it, I, I own it. I don't know. There is something so destructive about thinking that one knows all the time. And in my own work, in my own conversations with artists and designers on this topic, it's also that you don't know what really you're making until you make it. And Anne Hamilton talks about deliberately cultivating a space of not knowing, yes. resisting all the pressure that you get to say, this is my project, this is what I'm working on but instead to allow yourself to engage with material, engage with understanding, engage with a process, engage with a making that gets you to a point of beginning to know what it needs to be in that spontaneous, almost improvisational moment. Exactly. And I think that, you know, I teach in that manner. I, when I teach, I sometimes give a very simple, like, a, let's say, something to read. We need to deconstruct it. And then you need to arrive through that deconstruction to a word. And that word you need to forget. And we create a space mm. of forgetting. Mm. And we say that which we think we know about that word, and we just put it aside and mm. said, that is not touchable. Yes. So then, where do we start? And so that cultivating of a space of not knowing, it is an incredible, incredibly important method to be able to make something out of nothing. And that is the purest creative act. And so I think that when we, you know, I do make a very specific process. I have my methodology to forget and to start with this not knowing. Wow. And 
I feel incredible vulnerability. Sure. Because I may fail at doing anything except running back to what I know out of fear, out of insecurity, out of trying to prove someone that I know. But to be able to suspend the not knowing and really allow this new person that it is you in this empty place, beautifully silent, that suddenly it begins to just like boil with incredible newness and creativity. And just out of curiosity, when you begin to enter that place of not knowing, of uncertainty, and the boiling, to use your beautiful metaphor, starts to happen, and you begin to find things, do you find surprises or do you recognize what it needs to be? I think is recognition. Mm. It's funny because a lot of, uh, again, in my own exploration of this question, a lot of artists and designers talk about surprise. But Anne Hamilton said, no, it's not it's surprise. Recognition. It's recognition. Yeah, yes, it is thought. recognition because it is almost like you remember what life is and you remember things that maybe you knew when you were three or four or five. And that's why I think that it is, we are, as humans, incredibly receptive. And our whole life we are receiving, 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 mm -hmm. receiving. And it is only our limited ego, mind, disciplinary definitions and all of that is what keeps you from actually exploring all what you have gathered throughout your entire life. And so when your brain is on the way, when your culture is on the way, when your fears are on the way, it's like you just need to recognize them as filters that have not been cleaned mm. and that you need to just like take them off, dust them a little bit, and then just, you know, begin to explore. So to expand on that a little bit, you have also spoken about this experience of waiting as part of your process. And waiting is such a, in so many ways, such a familiar human experience, how often we wait and what we do while we're waiting. It could be for a bus, it could be for the Messiah, I don't know, but I mean, big and small, we are, human beings are in a state of waiting very much. But you find a richness in that waiting, I think, that is also part of your process and opens up creative possibility for you. Yes, I think um, quieting everything. I think, again, that connection to the not knowing is that that means that you, you don't have much to then move with or run with or be in a hurry with because there is nothing for a while. And so when I'm in the Arctic, right, and I think that that's when a lot of the waiting happens, the nature that I know can easily be ignored. I mean, we are so numb to the whole idea of what nature is, the horizon line or a landscape. We've seen it. People usually just like, oh, they're nice, and then they move. But when you actually are there and you feel it with every part of your, you know, all your senses are open, and when you do not recognize it as a landscape and you do not recognize it as waves or recognize it as wind or recognize anything, I get acclimated to observe more precisely. And so the slowness allows me to then recognize or look, see the world anew. And the waiting, of course, is a way of being able to be not only with nature, but being with myself, which is the hardest thing. Mm. And so when I find myself in this very quiet being, I'm again, perhaps what I'm looking for is a dissolution of my sense of self, my dissolution of my, the sense of my identity, the sense of my body, the sense of my boundaries, so that then I end up becoming with, right, becoming mm. with the landscape, becoming with the wind, becoming with the birds, becoming with that which I'm studying. Just the same way that I had my students deconstruct their texts and deconstruct the word, I'm constantly deconstructing my identity because I think that otherwise my filters are too strong. Right. So waiting, waiting, being there, I dissolve.
The next element of your process that interests me is how you speak about the mediation or the materiality of technology and what you use. How technology gives us a view of something in the natural world, for example, and how, and you've already even talked about this, but the whole notion of what it means to defamiliarize the world, right, and to see it anew, and how technology may help us do that. My sense of your work is that technology is a vehicle for you to explore, to see anew, to create different context, and in, in that, making us simultaneously aware of the technology existing and not disappearing, but becoming an important element of that and of the watching itself. I mean, if, if we think of, of matter as vibratory phenomena, I mean, there is really nothing in the world that doesn't manifest itself as vibratory or rhythmic phenomena. That's very Stockhausen, right? Just right. like we are literal, we are transistors in the literal sense. Everybody thinks they are in the world, but they never realize they are the world. Right. And so it's this idea that we are these vibrations and that everything is just vibrating at different speeds. So therefore, when I am filming, you know, with 16 millimeter, my waterfalls or, you know, the, especially the at any given moment series, this phenomena in nature that I'm able that with through a little bit of shifting in speed, you know, filming at 60 frames per second, it gives you a very a different sense of the materiality. You understand the material you are looking in the video as different. So that's the first kind of difference that I give you. Second difference is, of course, the celluloid itself, the materiality of the film itself, that you no longer recognize it as the digital, but there's something else that you cannot name. But then again, it is light. I'm really, I'm telling you all of this through light. And so in this simulation of, I'm bringing you back the vibratory aspects but now it's light. It's no longer the specificity of the reflection of, mm-hmm. of the matter itself, of the reflection of light, of how the wind acts, acts, acts upon it. But it is a simulation. But you still feel it. You Absolutely. feel it as nature. Yeah. You feel it as the power of the natural world. So then puts into question the natural world and puts into question the simulation. Right. And hopefully what I want to have you come out with is... Well, if it puts into question this and that, then what is their connection? And does it put my own body into question as also vibratory phenomena? So for a moment, I want you to congeal. I want everything to become one vibration, one vibrating world. You know, back in uh, another lifetime, I wrote a book on filmic adaptations of Shakespeare's plays. And one of the things that really interested me and it's similar to the things that interest you. I, I wanted to know how the technology of film took us on a journey through those plays that you could never have by watching it on the stage or reading it. Mm-hmm. And I remember one particular insight that I think has reverberations to what you're saying, that we think about the climactic scene of King Lear of in the storm and the human being contending with the fretful elements, right? And that's this big moment on stage. But in the film, the image of Lear in the storm took up the same space on the screen as the tear that came from his daughter Cordelia's eye. Both held the same dramatic space, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Both had the same vibration. Claro, exactly. It can be as subtle, but it it carries humanity. It carries the condition of man. It carries our understanding of our humanity, of nature, of everything in one moment or the other. So that's very beautiful. You also speak about who we are as humans, as storytellers and myth makers. And I wondered if you could expand on that for us a little bit and how that finds its way into how you think about your work and the process that you go through. I think that the whole idea of, of us understanding, you know, who we are and that we need to know, we need to kind of place ourselves in histories in, and in stories to be able to, you know, uh, uh, perhaps give meaning to our evolution as, as humanity. And especially before when everything was about verbal, you know, oral storytelling. I think that so much of what happens within each one of us 
in order for us to perhaps give it a kind of meaning, we need to put it in terms of story. As, you know, whether it's a dream that you have, it comes out as a, as a kind of story. Whether it is an experience, the moment we begin to articulate it into, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, we give it a, a time and a place. This is the contradiction. In the one hand, I work so intensely and judiciously to dissolve self, to dissolve identity, to dissolve boundaries, to dissolve disciplines. And on the other is reconstructing them as something else, giving it story, giving it identity. And it is, to me, a lot of the times it's about changing the conversation because sometimes our stories are so tired. Our story of our democracy, our story of the environment, our stories of how we are supposed to exist as humans in this earth right now, they are exhausted, they're tired, they're repeated, and we are destroying ourselves based on one story or a series of stories. So deconstructing what does the earth mean now, what does a human means now, creates very different stories and very different conversations. And I think that that, the power that we have as, you know, again, designers, artists, storytellers, is that we can say, you know what, Let's undo this story. Let's deconstruct this and let's get rid of that which is not good for us anymore as a civilization. And let's construct new stories. Let's let's tell them so that we have a different myth to surrender ourselves to. And this brings me to how if we continue to tell stories, like for example, in the Bible, we have control over the seas and control over all nature and that we own nature, basically. And our young ones, the little ones, are hearing that. They cannot see nature as equal. They cannot see a bear as equal. They will always want to destroy that and own it because it is their, that's the story they've been hearing since they were little. So many stories that if we continue to tell them, we will not get anywhere. So, so, for example, another story that divides us into, into clans is that here is Chinese history, Mexican history, da-da-da history. We are, you know, putting each other like clans and we don't understand that we are a humanity fighting serious problems in the planet right now. So that whole thing of now telling a different story in which we see the history of the universe, not so much just of me, Rebecca, and was born, da-da, no, in the history of the universe, 13.7 billion years, I think, is the history of the universe. Humankind has only existed by for like, uh, 200,000 years or so. That idea that if we do not start thinking ourselves in the context of the universe, we will not be able to have what it takes for us to be able to solve the problems we have right now. I was going to ask you about this later, but what you just said is too interesting to let go because I think it's connected to that little four-ounce bird. Yes. And if you might talk a little bit about the Circumsolar Project and that amazing Arctic turn that goes from pole to pole as this kind of new frame. In other words, while you were speaking, I was thinking, well, we need frames of this history and this history and this history. But Rebecca's interested in changing the frame. And this little bird comes along that fascinates you, that helps change the frame and helps us understand story or myth or even human experience in a very different way, all in this quotidian detail of this beautiful bird. Yeah. Is the connection resonant for you? Very much so. Very much so. Because it suddenly joins the world. Right. You know, the Circumsolar Project is this long-term project that follows the Four ounce little bird that goes from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again every year. And he does a solo flight. And they're pelagic. They basically are navigating, uh, flying over, over the oceans. But to me, it's like in that moment, it's like I'm not located. I am, well, I am equally located where I am, but I am connected to the world through wind, currents, climate. Um, And migration. Migration, of course. I mean, it's it's, migration is, if something unifies the world, is migration. We Mm. always think that it is climate, right? The weather. No, 
migration is like billions and billions of birds just moving about the world and unifying everything and going from the Arctic to the Antarctic or going from, you know, the north to the south. That is a way for me to say we are a planet. We are not a country. We are not a state. We are not a household. We are not a human alone. All of us are in synergy, in complete movement. And the moment that we want to build a wall or really frame ourselves with boundaries and, division and, and separations, we cease to live, we cease, cease to express what it is alive, which is movement, which is flow, which is sharing this planet. I wanted to ask you about how your process then translates into your work, and so this conversation about the Circumsolar Project was a beautiful transition. But I also really want to talk to you about the uh, exhibition that was at Art Center in the Williamson Gallery. I don't know if you know this, but I tried to drop in on it just about every day while it was there, um, and talking about the vibration of it and what it was, and I'm going to ask you to describe it in a moment, but before I do... I wanted to say that somewhere you have said that when people see your work, you would like them to feel more life within. And I'm here to tell you that that was a very good description of my experience with any given moment was part of the series. Um, and there were two pieces. One was grass, two with burnt wood, and one was fall, one with volcanic rock. And I have to say that I found it both calming and stirring at the same time. I found its rhythm and its music through both the visual and the sound that you created just held me and allowed me, frankly, to be very still while I was there. It was like I was being captured by these poems that wouldn't go away. And it affected me like poetry affects me. Poetry affects me in a way, it enlivens me internally somehow. That's sort of how I define often my experience with poetry. And this was the experience of seeing these two pieces that you had there. That's the prelude to what I wanted to say. Obviously, I found them very, very beautiful. But maybe if you could just let the listeners know what each one of those pieces was, and then we can go on to talk about why it had that profound effect on me. Mm -hmm. That was wonderful. I am so happy that, 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 that it had that effect. The series is called At Any Given Moment. And that series came about, it really was my very first serious series that I did, art, uh, a series of artworks, video artworks. And it began by my going to Iceland and then, again, observing, staying, being, waiting for nature to tell me something different. Nature is always saying something. And then suddenly it stops and says, like something completely distinct. And I was there and I remember like taking the camera out, my 16 millimeter camera and fighting with the tripod because I know that usually this doesn't happen that often when I see something that behaves differently. And I'm looking at the ocean of the grass just moving and I call it the ocean because for me suddenly what I loved and what I understood, what I was liking about what the weather, what, the, what nature was doing is that it was transmutating. Grass became the ocean. The behavior was not any more of grass, but it was a behavior of ocean. So it was, for me, that matter suddenly became something else. And I was filming the ocean when I really was filming mm. the grass. So this moment of when something is no longer was what I was capturing with that series. Where the vibrations of the grass or the vibrations of the waterfall, right, how, how it was falling, is as if you're seeing powder, a dry material being, that is falling. It's not water anymore. So that also, there was another shift on that. So in that work that I'm, you know, looking at technologically mediated nature in one way, it's very much focused on rhythmic phenomena, cycles and systems, 
But that again, the cycles themselves begin to question their own nature and the cycles begin to question my own system. So I want you to almost like become the waterfall, become the grass, or at least that you're oscillating and becoming with. And that here I come back to Bergson, the moment of the present where we are in this constant becoming my identity becomes with grass and the grass becomes with me and so we kind of like just just move and become each other for me it's like that I did not know or let's say I did not go out with a goal of creating a sacred space but nature is sacred to me there is where I find God and so for me to then be able to honor nature with all of my heart and all of my love to bring it then to the gallery and to feel that yes this is a sacred space it made me so happy the other project i really wanted to talk about is at the same time the commission you did for uh, la metro Maybe describe that to the listeners and then we can explore it a little bit more. Yes. At the same time, it's a mural for the metro station at Crenshaw uh, Station. And uh, And where is Crenshaw? Crenshaw in Los Angeles. Yes, Crenshaw Station is in Los Angeles. It is uh, close to downtown and it is a very busy, exciting part of Los Angeles. And the expo line and the Crenshaw Station will be the busiest ones of all of the stations that we uh, are making here in Los Angeles. Uh, There's going to be three Conkers platforms and I'm on the second level. The mural is 96 feet long by 10 feet tall and it will be built all with uh, smalty mosaic. The smalty mosaic is glass that basically it is cut by hand and it is a very very old Roman style of making murals. So when I was given the commission, this is by Metro Art Commission, I was thinking about what is special about riding the subway, riding the metro and that is that It is quite democratic. That to me was something that was very important to me. It's just everyone goes in, no matter, you know, so many different social classes, so many different groups, so many different ages. Uh, So it's, to me, a a beautiful uh, symbol of democracy. And I was thinking, what can I depict that I I would want to convey that idea of democracy? I went to the area, went to Crenshaw, went to all of that. I just looked up after researching a while and just said, you know, every time I come here and I look up, it's like we all see the same thing. We all share the same sky. And so I decided to work with photographing the sky. Like I thought one day in Los Angeles, what's happening outside Well, perhaps you're running into your office and you're going in, you know, first of all, you have to go down one whole level. So you already are like a rat going down into the earth and you leave behind the beautiful sky. So I also considered what happens while you are in the office and you don't, you're not exposed to the beautiful sky that is happening outside. So I called it at the same time. And so I took photographs of the sky of Los Angeles and I made every 15 minutes, it was one foot of the mural. So You would take a shot of the sky. I would take the sky every 15 15 minutes. minutes. Exactly. And that would take that space on the mural. Yes. So then what you see is 96 columns and each one represents 15 minutes of the sky of Los Angeles. So it's a clock in a way as well. Uh It's a time timekeeper piece day and night day and night so, so you, you see uh, and i'll use this word deliberately the migration of the color yes the migration of the clouds mm-hmm. migration of light yes and and what's very beautiful is that it gives us uh, a moment of being able to just as you're rushing to be able to see the sky and hopefully that stays in your memory as you are in the office and what happens right in front of it there's a second mural And so if this long mural that I call at the same time, right in front you have a second mural that it is the wing of the Arctic turn. Mm. So then I connect the commute of the longest migration (laughs) that we can 
that we understand, that we know with your commute of the day. So it places you again in the local and the planetary. I mean, not to beg the obvious, but what fascinates me about this project at the same time is that you have, through stills, created a kind of movement of sky and its transition and its process. And it's allowed us to see, I mean, we talk about the sky as blue, but from the photographs I saw, there's a lot of different blues that happen in a sky in any given day. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, and it is definitely a flow. It is... It is a short film, if you want to call that. It is a sequential work. Right. Mm -hmm. But it also challenges our frames and tells a different story, too. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that when we, I mean, we kind of, and again, it's one of those things that the day is the known. How can I make the known unknown? And this is another time of, like, how can I have you see an entire day differently, but that it will stay in your memory for the entire day. Mm, <laughs> so great. that yeah, could yeah. be a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay, well, let's turn to what you're doing now at UCLA with the Counterforce Lab. If you could tell us a little bit about that and what your interest is there and what you've been working on. With feeling the urgency of the environmental crisis and social crisis that we are encountering every day now, I felt that as I was doing my work, my artwork, I think, and and, uh, much of my design work as well, it, it is concerned with design as a social force, and how is it that, you know, my art would convey in a poetic way issues of climate, issues of the environment. And at the same time, I felt that there was a need for me to do more and to be able to then connect all of the different people that I know within UCLA that are working with environment and sustainability. And so I decided, you know, here we have, uh, there is all these centers within UCLA that care about that, but there was nothing within the arts that dealt with art and the environment, art, design, and environment. So I created the Counterforce Lab, which is a center dedicated for art and environment that utilizes art and design to develop creative collaborations, perhaps, you know, and do uh, new projects, methodologies, new ways of research, issues around climate change, issues around our environment. And from there, you know, what we do is that we are creating projects. Like sometimes there is some, some of my classes work together with the, like I give them projects. One of them was about migration caused by climate change in the Mexico-U.S. border. And as we know, migration is a way of coping and dealing with environmental stresses. And so it was something that you don't understand very well that the border of Mexico and the U.S. would have any migrants that come because of climate change. And yes, they do. I mean, so much has changed in the Sea of Cortez, the river, mm. you know, that does no, no longer go into uh, the bay. Mm. So, so many, uh, the certification is stronger. So there are projects that we, that I, we create provocations. And it's the idea of being able, again, to tell different stories, to change the conversation. Can you give us an example of what it brings that the conversation hasn't yet really revealed? Well, um, for example, I think that uh, when some of the students put the question of our treatment of animals, right, how we treat animals, and, you know, one can pretty much we read every all the time that we have treated animals horribly, and we continue to do so. But the students are able to then suddenly say, well, what if we do this proposition? What if we suddenly say there is a second class of citizens that we grow them for us to consume? So cannibalism is a way that we that they kind of take the provocation and do visual expressions, and they have a way of engaging with suddenly creating a second class of citizens that would be, you know, fattened and treated very much for human consumption. So the visual aspect, the storytelling again here, the many ways in which we can communicate something through time-based video, 
photography, all of that. I think that it gives us perhaps a way of being able to engage with it with more than our reason. We can engage with all of our bodies and be really repulsed by it. So I feel that perhaps the arts are able to again engage more of our senses, engage much more of our of ourselves in the in the conversation. Have you seen by any chance the documentary called Anthropocene? And it features a lot of Edward Bertinsky's work. Yes, yes, yes. Here's what it does that I think is really interesting, and I wonder if it's relevant to what you do. It reveals in really interesting ways, but one doesn't feel accused. You look at what humanity has done in this little, like these 10,000 years, which is a speck of dust in the four and a half billion years the Earth has been around, so much so that we are creating this epoch that we're calling the Anthropocene, right? And he takes these photographs, and they are stunning for what we have wrought. But, Rebecca, they're beautiful. They are. They're gorgeous. And it catches us in that dynamic. Yeah, yeah. What is to me that we are facing as artists and as designers, as anyone, filmmakers, is that we no longer need to suggest or to bring awareness We want you to panic. This idea of the horrendousness that we are causing. The interesting thing about matter and nature is that in flames, being destroyed, being debased, and it is magnificent. We will go as a humanity in flames magnificently Mm. because matter is magnificent. Mm. It's just that it's the humanity that will go. Matter, the universe... It is glorious at any given moment. It is humans that we are talking about. And so, yes, when we see those images, they are glorious. But we are seeing us being destroyed gloriously. Mm. Which I have no judgment on that. It's beautiful the way that he photographs. And, you know, Bertinsky is just incredible. And it needs to be done with power and presence and beauty. But I think that we are at a point that we need to panic. We need to scream. The urgency is such that awareness is not enough. So can I just, uh, I want to explore just a little bit or maybe even push back slightly Mm -hmm. that so much of what we've learned today from this conversation is the power of the interiority, of breaking it down, of finding some level of peacefulness so that something else can come through. I wonder if panic allows us to do that. Panic in a sense of our instincts, right? Of our reptilian brain, our connection to the earth, our connection to the world. Do you think that maybe that will help us realize that we need to live? I maybe do. Maybe that's the panic. And maybe, maybe by panic you're calling for action, which I get. I'm calling for nature. So maybe by for and maybe it's the wrong word panic like don't just go shooting people no panic in a sense that maybe it's more like uh, I want you to get in touch with your animality I want you to get in touch with your with that which will can help you survive because I do feel that our survival depends in our connection to animals again to animal life to you know uh, plants to to nature it is our recognition that we are animal so perhaps i was more thinking our reptilian self that will help us become animal again it might it might and it might incite us to a, a level of action or just to a kind of uh, primal call yeah. of humanity I guess I would just say that while the rage is critical, that's Lear on the Heath, but the tear is also critical. Claro, I think it's as if we need to rage with love. We need to rage by loving. Mm. And I feel that we can do that. Mm. We can rage by loving intensely our planet. And so my call is to love intensely. Mm. Love with all your force. Love with all your fire. All, all what you have and, and go back into your ancestors and learn from them of what is it that they 
the, the synergy that they had with the earth. I just finished a project of making a healing of the earth in Oaxaca that I know that you might not know about it. It's very new. It's right now in the Museum of, Cont- of Contemporary Art in Oaxaca. But it was, it's my working with healers in Oaxaca. They are also weavers. And through my research, I unearthed a goddess of weaving who is a warrior. Tlazolteotl, Mixtec, mm. and Nowichana in Zapotec. I'm struck by the metaphor of the weaving. Beautiful and so resonant with so much of what we've talked about. Because weaving is a curious migration. Weaving is an interesting breaking of boundary. It's a constant movement. Weaving is constant movement, yeah. It's rhythm. Totally, yeah. This artwork, what it does, I call it Ascent of Weavers, as the title of the piece. It's a three-channel video art installation that um, it's uh, 30 minutes and it is a call to action, a call to awaken to a collective healing of the earth. The idea came from the Contemporary Art Museum in uh, Oaxaca, Maco, and um, they brought together 12 artists with 12 artisans and for us to conceive of a work together. So mine was a weaver. And I went down there, I met them. The idea was to just, the moment you meet is the moment you start conceiving an idea that I don't come with an idea that they suddenly produce for me. So it was much You come with not knowing. I came with not knowing (laughs) and with, I didn't even know whether I was going to be doing black clay or weaving. So we went to Mitla in uh, the south of uh, Oaxaca, Mitla, and I met the family, learned they were wonderful weavers of the loom, and they're uh, dancers of traditional Zapotec dancers. But then I learned they were healers, especially Hildardo, a healer. And that's when I started to think, you know, I cannot just make a weaving piece when I know you do all this. So after talking and meeting and filming, I was filming everything, I realized, you know, I think we need to make a film. Let's make a film. Let's make something where we tell a, a more complex story. So, of course, I, you know, came back and I, you know, well, I went to Mitla and I knew about uh, the archaeological site of Mitla from my family. You know, we had traveled there when we were young. The Mictlan and Mitla is the city of death. The Mictlan is the Mixtec underworld that Mm. has nine levels of Mm. the underworld. The piece itself is... There are four entities that represent the cycles of the sun, the sky, and the underworld. And they also represent the different directions of the pre-Hispanic Zapotec and their colors. They are led by a dog into the underworld, and they go through the nine steps of the underworld, and which they are like piercing winds and mountains like crush you, and you cross rivers of blood. And then they emerge as goddesses of weaving and uh, warriors to lead us into a more just sustainable world, right? Here is where I come in with (laughs) very mythic, creating a new myth. I need to create new myths. So this is a way in which a myth is created, a new one, which is an an ancestral one, and that it is in my blood. And so there's something very, to me, very powerful to then for us to go back into the voices that we need now all the intelligence of all human, humans that have ever existed to get us out of this mess. I will um, maybe close, and I regret having to do this because I'm so, so moved by all that you've said. I keep going back to the image of the little girl walking with her family. And I like it because um, it's resonant to so much of what you said. Here you are taking care and needing to go back to find your own strength and your own interiority, but simultaneously kind of weaving the family back together again as it's migrating and moving through space. 
it kind of gathers up so much of what you talked about in a very beautiful way. And I just want to thank you for, well, thank you for today. Thank you for your clarity and your honesty and your willingness to just be with me in the moment, not knowing where we were going, but also for your work and all that it brings to us and stirs in us. And it's very special. And, and, and having this opportunity to talk to you today makes completely clear to me why the work goes so deep for me. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Lauren. You're bringing tears to my eyes. Thank you. This is beautiful. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Boland.